0: Thank you so much, Vanderwer family. Thank you to Brianna earlier and playing the piano and all the music. So thankful for the talent that God has given to our church and the willingness to use it for His glory. So thankful for that. If you would, please take your Bibles, your copy of God's Word, and turn with me to the first letter of Peter, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 8 we read this phrase finally be ye all and the following verses contain very specific instructions but before we dive into those specific instructions i have a question who's ye all who's the ye all Finally, be ye all. Who is it? Well, we can find it right here in this book, but we're going to have to turn back to chapter 2. Turn with me back to chapter 2 and look with me at verse 9, because verse 9 describes who this ye all is. And here it's described, we are described, as a chosen generation Not speaking of a generation in sequence of time, but a chosen generation as in joint heirs with Christ, being heirs together with Christ. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people who have direct access to the God of all creation, to the God of gods, an holy nation, a people set apart to God a peculiar people. Not a peculiar in the sense of weird, but in a sense of weird, if you want to use that word, as one who are different because of who we are in Christ. And all this, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This is who the ye all are. Us, the people of God, given these descriptions. And it is considering who we are That Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beseeches us to be different things. I'd like to read now, together, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 down through chapter 3 and verse 12. It's all part of the same conversation. As Peter has just identified a group of people, Christians throughout all ages, from his time to the present time, to even we look in the future, Christians, if the Lord tarries. And he beseeches us. I've told you before that whenever Peter says, dearly beloved, get ready, because he is about to say something hard. And he wants us to know right up front that we're beloved. We're beloved by God. And so he's identified us here in verses 9 and 10. And then he says in verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Oh, we're not only all these wonderful things, but we're also strangers and pilgrims. Dearly beloved, strangers and pilgrims. We're people who are as if we are aliens, as if this land, this world is not our own. Because it's not. For our citizenship is in heaven. And because of that, it should make a difference in how we live. For he continues, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Having your conversation, your way of life, honest among the Gentiles, the unbelieving, idolatrous, godless world. That whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we as a special chosen people, dearly beloved, are besought to abstain from fleshly lusts, to live honestly in this world, that others may take note and see it, and give glory to God when the day of their salvation comes. Do we live our lives in that way? That being the introduction, Peter then goes on and calls for three different relationships in which there needs to be submission. Submission of citizens in their governments, of servants or employees to their masters or employers, wives to their husbands. And then in verse 8 of chapter 2, Or chapter 3, he continues on in dealing instructions for us all. So what we're looking at today is verses 8 through 12, but we have to recognize at the beginning of verse 8, it says finally, which means that all of what has come before here as an introduction, this is the pinnacle of it. This is the cap. This is what wraps and ties it all together. So the introduction here of this, this treatise, you might say, is in verses 9 through 10, really I would say verses 9 through 10 is not the introduction, it's rather the addressee, who it's written to. And then verses 11 through 12 is the introduction. And then it's given specific areas of submission and relationships. And then in verse 8 through 12, it is finally bringing it all together. All of ye, ye all, here is what is life and those who will love life and see good days. So let's read it. from verse 11 on down through in its entirety. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, And not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward, For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin? Neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously." who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Likewise ye wives, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrise blessing knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace. And ensue it, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Great God, we bow before you this morning, so thankful that we hold in our hands and we are able to hear and to read and to know your ways your truth, your plans in life. May we recognize who we are in Christ Jesus. May we recognize the incredible privileged status that we have as joint heirs with Christ, as the dearly beloved of God, as the sheep returned to the good shepherd, the overseer of our soul. Lord Jesus, I pray that this would make a difference in our lives, that we would be a people that would indeed love life and see good days, that we would be a people who would live unto righteousness. And so, Father, dear Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, move among us this morning, teach us, guide us. May we know the truth. And may your Spirit help us in applying it to our lives that we as your people might be encouraged, that we might be challenged, and in some cases rebuked and restored, that today we might be drawn closer to you. Even if we are called to suffer for righteousness' sake, may we count that cost and be ready. So be with me now, Lord, as I seek to explain and expound your word And glorify yourself now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Finally, be ye all of one mind, Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You might read that and say, what's that mean? Well, think about what has just been explained. We have seen a group of people here Who are called out of all different cultures, all different backgrounds, called of all different languages, a peculiar people gathered together. Jews and Gentiles, all different people in the body of Christ. And we also have some who may be government rulers, governors, officials, all citizens. We have some who are servants, but yet some who are masters. We have wives. We have husbands. And we have these different relationships. And in considering these different relationships, you might say, why? They can't all be of one mind? Or can they? Well, I believe that's the reason why that's the first point here. Finally, be ye all of one mind. Because we have just dealt with different relationships, different authority structures. And sometimes those can get in the way. But no, the admonition here is to be of one mind. Now, what does this mean? Well, does it mean that everyone just does what the king is supreme says because he's the rule of the land? Does it mean that just there's a blind obedience to the forward as well as the good and gentle masters because they're the master? doesn't matter what you think as an employee. Or wives, and submitting to husbands, it doesn't matter what you think. Just do what the husband says. Think the way he thinks. Is that what it means? No. This being of one mind as citizens and kings who are believers, masters and and servants, employees, employers, husbands, wives, and all the body of Christ in whatever relationships you find, be of one mind in Christ. Seek God's will seek and know His way and submit to Him. And you know what? In some cases, one in a position of headship or authority may need to be corrected. And being of one mind doesn't mean that you just allow that one to continue on in wrong thinking or false thinking. But there is this pursuit among these believers to be of one mind, one mind of unity, and that's only going to come, truly, if there is a submission one to another in seeking what is true. And I submit to you this morning that the greatest and most significant authority we have in our lives today for what is true is God's word. And we need to be together seeking God's way and living in unity of truth, of one mind in God. It's a submission one to another. And you know, it's going to be manifested in different ways. For he goes on here, not only is it finally be of one mind, but it is in having compassion one for another. In all of our different relationships, whether the one specifically laid out before us here or in other relationships, just simply as brothers and sisters in Christ, do we have compassion one for another? There are several things that are different words used here in verse 8 that all flow out of being of one mind and even if the one mind isn't there, the balances to it and really the pieces that will result in leading and eventually leading to a one mind if it's not there at the start. The compassion one for another, a love you see here as brethren, be pitiful and be courteous. Compassion, brotherly love, pitifulness, and courteous. Well, the compassion is the act, action of the outwardness of it. It's the action of what you do. Jesus was overcome with compassion for the multitudes, and he sat down and he taught them with that. He was overcome with compassion of the multitudes, and he fed them compassion. But it's not just for yourself or your little clique. It is one of another. It's, it's, a, it's an overflowing to all brothers and sisters in Christ. Let there be compassion, one of another. And here, the love, the love is brethren. This is the Greek word phleo, which comes with, the, come, comes with the idea of a brotherly love, a friendship love, a love that is as brothers. Now, depending on what your relationship with your brothers, you might have a weird definition of that, but the real meaning here is that of, a, of the closest of friendships, a friendship love that here is, is flows out. And then be pitiful. Now, you might read that and you might go, well, you know, normally, especially as Americans, we kind of resent being pitied, don't we? But should we? Well, Oftentimes when we pity someone, we're not really pitying them. We're judging them. True pity comes from a heart that is tender, a heart that is hurting because you care so much about the one and what they're going through. And because that that heart is hurting, it will change how you engage with those around you. Have you ever had that? Have you ever been in a situation where you were helping someone or you were aware of a situation and you literally could feel pain in your heart? Sometimes we have built walls around our hearts and we've built situations where where we don't ever allow ourselves to be in this state. And that's why we hate being pitied. But it's not a bad thing. Now, you might say, oh, no, I'm not that strong. We'll come back to that later because I'll tell you right up front here of everything we're going to learn about here today, I'm not that strong. And I can tell you, neither are you but I know somebody who is. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that when you are, your heart is about to break, will help you to not build up a wall, but to let flow genuine, heartfelt pity. Not in despising, but in helping This is what's being described here. This brotherly love and this heart that is so tender that it flows out in help and be courteous. Oh, that's a great word, courteous. You know what it means to be courteous? To be courteous means that you have a frame of mind that looks not on your own things, but on the things of others. You have a mind and you have a perspective to life that is humble. You see and you understand situations and you don't, you, you, you go into situations with a disposition, with a, a background of, 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 of a, the way you prepare yourself that is in humility. It's how you have good manners. That's what it means to be courteous. Uh, manners and courteous is one who doesn't come around demanding their rights. Well, demanding their way, demanding this and demanding that. And everybody else is subservient to me. Isn't that interesting? This flows right after all the aspect of these aspects of authority structures. It's, it's, it's courteous. It's, it's, a, it's a humility. And it's a frame of mind that prepares the mind to serve and to be kind to others. You see how important it is to be of one mind and have compassion, have love, be pitiful, be courteous? Oh, 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 how much sweeter our relationships could be if this is the way we lived every day. Think of this. You yourself, ask the Holy Spirit to show you. How do you apply this in the church? How do you apply this? How do you practice this in your home, in your relationships with your spouse, with your children, with your parents? How can you live this and apply this? How can you live this? How can you apply this in the workplace? You might say, yeah, that's a hopeless cause. But is it? We must not approach it as a hopeless cause. It's it's an instruction given by the Lord and it's given in the context of employment as well as in the context of civil government. Oh, how much could be done and accomplished if our politicians were statesmen who were all finally of one mind? It doesn't mean that one is in power and everybody else is subservient to him, but it means that he's coming together and seeking to be of one mind. Oh, they could use some basic courteousness, couldn't they? So often, see, this is an aspect. And so sometimes Christians say they won't have anything to do with civil government because they don't see these things. And may I submit to you, that's why Christians ought to be engaged in civil government, because they can bring these things into that public sphere. This one-mindedness, this compassion, this love, brotherly love, this pitifulness and this courteousness this needs to be in all of our lives. We, and you might say, mm, that's just too weird, preacher. May I re- point you back to chapter 2 and verse 9 where it says that ye are a peculiar people? It's sad that those who are loving and pitiful and courteous are considered peculiar So when you wonder what it means to be peculiar, this is a definition of peculiar. One who is like this, (laughs) now does it have more meaning of being peculiar? Because these are not the normal things in the world. But this ought to be the normal for the brethren, for the people of God. These things ought to be real. It continues on in more specificness, not rendering evil for evil. Oh, let's see. I think children figure this out when they're about this tall. Somebody does something mean to this one right here? Does something mean? So what's this one do? Something mean right back. And it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, forth, doesn't it? And you know what's sad? Is when it's down here, it's not a huge deal. But yet it is a huge deal. Because when they don't learn to not render evil for evil when they're this tall, or this tall, or this tall, or this tall, whatever height, we don't render evil for evil. And that's one reason why it's actually a big deal that children be taught not to render evil for evil when they're this tall. So that when they grow up, they're not in the habit or the practice of rendering evil for evil. Because that's not how we live. We're different. We're weird. We are peculiar. in the fact that when someone does us wrong, we don't just do wrong back. Do you see how big of a deal this would make in the workplace? Oh, how often is there trouble in the workplace when it's just a banter back and forth. Of, and sometimes it's just plain silliness. Not, even, not evil for evil. It's, all, it's not this. We don't render evil for evil. Or, continues on, railing for railing. Now, we don't always use that word very often. At my house, I'm trying to use more of these words because I think we need to expand our vocabulary. What's railing? Yelling. Fighting. Intense. Um, hurtful conversation and talk. Hard words, loud words, unkind words. It's the way we communicate. And here, as peculiar people, as those who should live unto righteousness, as is described over in verse 24 of the previous chapter, we, we don't live that way you know what often happens one rails and another rails and they go back and forth and back and gets louder and louder and more and more intense and becomes a disaster no we ought to be peculiar in the fact that a soft answer turneth away wrath when there is wrath when there is anger we don't respond in the same intensity and railing and, and and anger Or spitefulness. There's all different aspects of this. Rather, we respond really in the way that's described in verse 8 with courteousness, with humility of mind. Just as I a moment ago said, this proverb says, A soft answer turneth away wrath. So we don't return evil for evil, we don't return railing for railing. But what do we do? What's what's it say, but counterwise? It's saying the exact opposite. The exact opposite. You don't return evil for evil. You don't return railing for railing, but rather you do something totally different. And what does it say? Blessing. Now, you got to be careful with this because I've seen people who have taken and returned a blessing And it just sounded like a cloaked railing. (laughs) It's real. I shouldn't laugh. It's not funny. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a genuine blessing that is from the heart. You know what kind of blessing it's, it's referring to? It goes on for say, it says here, knowing that ye are there unto called... Oh, we are called unto a blessing that we should inherit a blessing. Flip over with me to the beginning of this book. As soon as the church is identified here in, in verses one and two, oh, why just let's for a moment here look at these, the blessedness of our status again, some more about who the Y'all is. In in chapter 1, verse 2, we are described as as elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ. We're the chosen ones. And there is grace unto us and peace. May the grace and peace be multiplied. Then look at verse three. For here we have a benediction where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. We have an inheritance that is the greatest blessing of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And considering that we have such blessing, we need to be living that blessing as we interact with other people. In the way that we bless, are we blessing them as those who are joint heirs with Christ? Are we blessing those who do evil to us, those who rail against us, do we bless them with the hope and the desire that they too would inherit the blessing? That's the kind of blessing here that's been spoken of. And so it's, it's, it's not just about this all day, well, I've got to bless him because it says i got to bless him. So I'm going to come up with this mean way of cloaked way of blessing him. No, it's a, it's a genuine way. And, and, and to be candid... I can't even just give you and state this is, what it, this is how it's done because the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. You find yourselves in so many different situations and so many unique ways that you need to respond with a blessing and that blessing could be a word. That blessing could be an action. That blessing could be a way of helping. That blessing could be totally anonymous. That blessing could be a meal. There are a million ways that the Holy Spirit could lead you to be a blessing. So I encourage you, as you look at this and consider it, don't just try to come up with a check, check, blessed him, done with that one for the day. But how can you, in sincerity, bless this one, knowing that you yourself have received the greatest of blessings through Christ. And let me put it a little bit more in perspective. We've also seen, as was introduced at the end of the previous chapter, that some of this is in the context of suffering. Suffering. For hereunto were ye called. Oh, that's interesting. So we're called to a blessing, but we're also called to suffer. It goes together. In fact, actually, then in verse 13 of this chapter, it picks up the whole theme of suffering again. So in this context, all of this is given in the context and the perspective that don't be surprised if you suffer for doing that which is right. What's that blessing look like? Uh, It all depends. It really does. There are so many ways in the Holy Spirit can lead you. And I beseech you, look for them. Be seeking the Lord and how you can be a true blessing. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but counterwise blessing, knowing that you're there called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Bless the same way God blesses. Now, you say, that's impossible. You're right. It is. So you know what you need to do? You need to let the Holy Spirit and Jesus, who lives inside of you and me as Christians, bless through you. And you will then bless as God blesses. And then in verse 10, let me ask you the same question Peter asks. For he that will love life and see good days... How many of you love life and, and want to see good days? Oh my, some of you need help. How many of you want to love life and see good days? Oh, good, good. We all ought to. We all ought to love life and see good days. There's nothing wrong with loving life and seeing good days. Sometimes in the Christian world, we get this idea that we're supposed to be monks and downtrodden. Now, there is a sense in which there is righteous contrition, sorrow for sin, legitimately so. But there's also an aspect in which we were created for God's pleasure to love life and to see good days. But you know there's some things that get in the way of loving life and seeing good days. Some of them have a lot to do with this. You ever seen a mouth, the tongue, the lips, the way in which we communicate, mess up good life and good days? Yeah. When we use our tongue to do evil and we use our lips to speak guile, there's a lot of different ways that we can use our tongue for evil. It's even connected to the previous passage of blessing and railing. Those would be ways, the railing would be a way of of using our tongue, our lips for evil. Our tongues and our lips can be used in compassion and love and pity and courtesy, can't they? Those are good things. But in James chapter 3, we're accounted for all the trouble that the tongue can cause. There it speaks of, behold the tongue, though it be a little member, how great harm it can cause, a world of iniquity. And if you were to just flip back a few pages to James chapter 3, it says, for in many things we offend all. But if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle his whole body. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. The one who is able to bridle, like a bridle in a bit is put into a horse's mouth so that the reins can control that horse, so the man who is able to bridle his mouth, his tongue, his lips, is able to control his whole body. There's a proverb that says, in the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. That means that there's a lot of sin that comes from the multitude of words, which means that we need to be careful beginning with our mouths. Oftentimes you can find out who someone is by how they talk and how they behave with their mouth. There's a lot of evil with the mouth. James chapter 3, verse 5 says, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter, a little fire kindleth. And the tongue... Is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth our whole body. And get this, setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Now, do you understand a little more as to why Peter says here He that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. In James chapter 3, continuing in verse 7, James writes, For every kind of beasts and of birds and of fowls and of things in the sea are tamed and have been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith, Curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. James writes, My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Just as Peter says, Will you love life and see good days? (laughs) These things ought not so to be, too. James wrote, and said, continuing in verse 11, doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Either vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh? You see, the blessing and the railing don't go together. The cursing and the blessing, they don't go together. Just like. Salt water and fresh water, they don't, go to, they, they don't come from the same source. You don't have a spring that springs out fresh water, and then, and then when they get poked, they spring out salt water. That's the way our tongues are sometimes. One day, one moment, we're speaking of the gospel to our coworker, and then the next day, everything's falling apart, and everything's blaming everything on us, and it's not really our fault, and so we lose it. And they wonder, wait a minute, this peculiar person here that calls himself a Christian yesterday was telling us about the grace of God and the gospel, and he gets poked today and he's just flowing out salt water. No life in that. No. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation. That's, by the way, not just his lips, but his whole life. His works with meekness of wisdom. Meekness is the idea of being under control and responding gently, even though you are under immense pressure. Even though you're under immense pressure, you respond with control and gentleness. That's meekness of wisdom, knowing and understanding and perceiving how is the best way. James continues in verse 14, but if ye have bitter envies and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth, for this wisdom descended not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. The continuation here of James is dealing with that tongue and flowing it forth into life. Will you see, will you love life and see good days? Be careful of that tongue. Be careful of that tongue. For it tells us in verse 17 of James 3, but the wisdom that is from above, that is from above, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace the tongue oh it's a little member is it bridled Is it under control, or is it used for evil? And is it used for guile, deception, deceit, lying? How do we use our tongue? How we use our tongue is an indication of how we conduct ourselves in life. And do we use our tongue to seek peace? For here we see these different aspects of wisdom that is from above. Wow, do you see that? Do you see the parallel of what James 3 is saying compared and paralleled over with what Peter is saying in chapter 3? Both in chapter 3. I love that they're the same chapter that helps us keep them connected. Uh, and then this pursuit of peace. Do you see that? The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Now take that and let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3 because look what he says. As soon as he says, for the one who will love life and see good days, verse 10, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Oh, it begins with that tongue, and it continues on in peace. But let's look here now at verse 11. As yet we have now specific instructions for those who will love life and see good days. It says here that let him eschew evil and do good. Now, I don't know when the last time is that you use the word en- eschew, Not a word we use so much nowadays. It carries the idea, not just, not just, of turning away from something. It's not about just there is evil, and I'm going to turn away from it. How do we use a little word included in this word? We use a word included in this word, don't we? Shoo! Have you ever seen a deer out in your garden eating the Cucumbers? What do you do? You go out and you shoo it away, right? Shoo, shoo. Now, some of us say that word, some of us don't. But we shoo it away. Now, you tell me, some, this may be a bad illustration because, because deer aren't always like us. When we say shoo, we want to see that deer and pick off, right? I've done it a few times, and the deer is nibbling, and I go out and I say, shoo, shoo. And the deer looks up at me, perks up its ears, and goes right back down and keeps eating it. <laughs> he wasn't eschewing my vegetables. I want him to eschew my vegetables. That means that I don't just want him to turn away from it. Mm, I want it. You know, sometimes when we turn away from evil, we're like, oh, I want it, I want it, but like Lot's wife. No, a shoe is that we have, it's an intensity, it's strong, it's, it's, it's as if we are an animal that has been startled and horrified by something, and we flee, we run from it. It's in shoe. We treat it as if we're being shooed away and startled. It's intense, it's intense, it's intense. That's why, that's why the translators chose the word. It carries that intensity that is also in the Greek. That intensity of, 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 it's not just this turning away from it, but it's it's a startled realization that this is evil, and I'm running from it, and I'm doing it quickly, and I'll have nothing to do with it. Eschew evil, he says, and do good. Is that the way we treat evil? Sadly, Christians flirt with evil when they need to be eschewing it. That is, turning away from it and getting out of there fast. But it's not just eschewing it. It's followed by doing good. Sometimes great evil comes into our lives because we turn away from that which is evil hmm, to go do something else evil. Beware of that. Jesus warned of that. Jesus warned of turning away from of, cast, of, of a demon being cast out and the house being swept clean so that demon just goes and finds seven other friends and moves in with demons worse than himself. We eschew evil, even in using the, the analogy of, the, of real demon possession, we, demon possession, demons cast out, we, we cast away the evil, we flee from it. It needs to be replaced. In the case of demons with the Holy Spirit, in the case of actions with good. Issue evil. Do good. Then middle of verse 11. Let him, who's the him? The one that will love life and see good days. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Seek peace. Do we seek peace? See, again, in this context here, finally be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendered evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrise blessing. All of this is given here in this idea and context of those who will love life and see good days, how they speak, how they control their tongue and lips. Do they eschew evil? In all of these, do we seek peace and ensue it? All my life, since I one time tried to memorize First Peter, I had a hard time with memorizing First Peter, getting it all down. I always came to this word, and I'm like, why didn't they just use the word pursue? Why didn't the translators just use the word pursue? That they pursue it, seek peace and pursue it. And in fact, in my Bible, it's got a little note next to ensue, and it puts over in the margin, or pursue. It uses the word, it substitutes it to help me understand it. And so... I did some research on it. I thought, why did the translators decide to use ensue instead of pursue? You notice they actually sound a little bit similar, don't they? Well, ensue is not an obsolete or an archaic word. If you go pull out a modern dictionary, you will find the word in the dictionary. In fact, we use it sometimes. We use it in some cases in such, where such and such a topic was presented and a conversation ensued. You ever heard something like that? Maybe, Yeah. We, we talk about it. Something is brought up, and, or something is, happens, and it's a, this ensued. The word ensued carries the idea of a presumption that it will happen. See, you can pursue something. Like I heard my kids pursuing some fish yesterday, and did you ever catch it? Now, how, you, how many times have you ever heard somebody talk about pursuing an animal or something and hunting, and you never got it? You never got it. Pursuing doesn't necessarily mean that you achieved it or that you captured it or that you gained it. Ensu, the English word ensu, which is very closely tied to the Greek word, carries the presumption that not only are you pursuing it, but that it is achieved, that it is gained. It's a presumption that the pursuit will come to pass, will be fulfilled. It's actually very fascinating how the Greek word is translated throughout our New Testament. It's the common word used for persecute, meaning that there's one who is persecuted. Paul was, or Saul was persecuting the church, a persecuting the church, and he was, it was happening. It was intense, and it was happening. And it carries the idea that not only do you seek the peace and ensue it, You know why I think it's important and fascinating that that word is used? That there's a presumption that it will be achieved? Because so often, this is what we do. We seek peace, we pursue it, and we give up. Stop trying. The point of this is, seek peace and ensue it. Keep on seeking it. And you know, sometimes we may think, oh, it doesn't work. In fact, actually, if we continue on in this passage, it's actually implied that for many Christians, they will seek peace and seek peace and seek peace, and they'll never attain it, for they will suffer greatly. But here it is. Seek the peace with the perspective that it will be achieved. And in the big picture and in light of eternity, peace is ensued. When Christ comes, peace will ensue. Do you see how the word is used? Peace will will be there. We can count on it. So do we love life? Do we want to see good days? We eschew evil, do good. We seek peace and ensue it. And now you may think, that's all good, preacher. Peter, or let's put it in proper perspective, Holy Spirit. I've tried those things and it's still trouble. There's still oppression. There's still persecution. There's still suffering. Or I just can't. I'm too weak. I'm too tired. I can't do that. Look at the climax of these ad, this admonition, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. You see, verse 24 of the previous chapter across the page there speaks of us as being dead in sins, but now we should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. When we're saved, when we're healed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are made alive to live unto righteousness. Which means we're righteous. And the eyes of the Lord are over us, and He hears our prayers. His ears are open unto their prayers. There are so many times in the midst when we seek to do right, when we seek to do good, whether in our home, in society, in the workplace, or in the church, and it doesn't seem to work. We're tempted to give up. We're tempted to think God doesn't see, God isn't helping me, God doesn't hear. He does see, and he does hear. He does see, and he does hear. Have you ever heard the Hebrew name of God, Jehovah Jireh? It's a word that we often translate as Jehovah or the Lord provides. And that's true. That's an accurate translation of it. But its literal meaning is Jehovah sees. The assumption is that if he sees, he's going to do something about it. And he does. Jehovah sees and his ears are open. And by the way, even when we don't think he hears or we don't see an answer, know for sure he hears. He sees. And the implication of this is that he is doing and will do something about what he sees and what he hears. may not be in my time or in my way, but he will do something about what he sees and what he hears. So keep on trusting, keep on obeying, and keep on praying. And by the way, if you're one who is doing evil, the face of the Lord is against you. Now, for those who are not doing evil and the face of the Lord is beholding us, like He sees us, as described here. The eyes of the Lord sees the righteous. That's, that's a good, that means He's going to provide for us the things that we need. The idea of Him taking and setting His face against one means that He is judging that one. He will bring about righteous judgment And this is a great comfort for the one who is seeking, who is loving life and would see good days and is refraining his lips from guile and from evil and and he is loving and pursuing peace and ensuing it and all of this and God's Spirit's help is doing it, but it's not working. And they're being oppressed and downtrodden. Know that the evil who are persecuting you, God's face is against them that do evil, he is and will judge them. So the admonition here is, for us that are righteous, let's not do evil, considering the fact that those who are evil will be judged. For the next question that is asked, and we'll come into this the next time we come to this chapter, but is, and who is he that will hurt you if ye be followers of that which is good? It's a rhetorical question. Who's going to hurt you if you're doing that which is good? And you might say, I can't preach another sermon, but you might say, well, there's lots of people who could hurt me, So, so I have to bring you to the end of this chapter because the end of this chapter is glorious. The question is asked, and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Well, you might come up with a whole long list of people who could hurt you and harm you and be mean to you, but look at the end where it speaks of Jesus Christ who is resurrected and gone into heaven, is on the right hand of God, a position of authority and power, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him that pretty much encompasses everybody who could do you harm and hurt you. They're all subject to him. And so in this hall, as you look at life and you may be struggling through life or even suffering through life or doing wrong in life, look to the one who has redeemed you, the one who has passed you from death into life, that you should live into righteousness and know that his eyes are over the righteous It's the eyes of protection, provision. Trust Him. Trust Him. We could recount all that has been admonished here, but in the overarching of it is, trust the Creator God who is over all, who has commanded, instructed, admonished you in these things. And if this morning you have not received the forgiveness of sins and you're not one of these peculiar people, you're not one of this chosen generation, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Receive him today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's through him only that we can have salvation and really ultimately love life and see good days. It starts there. It doesn't end there. But it's the start and the foundation. And that's the only able way we can pursue on in these other instructions. Which, by the way, these things don't save us. These are simply instructions given as we seek to follow our Savior, looking for that day when He'll come back, as is described over in chapter 1 of the one where we look to Him who will come back for us, and seeking Him day by day. Gracious Lord, we give to you this day praise, glory, and honor. This day we are so thankful that you are our Savior, our Redeemer, that you are our life. May we love life and see good days. May we love you and obey you, trusting you moment by moment. And even when it seems that life is not good and not very lovely, May we not be tempted to turn away from you or to forsake your ways, but to follow on even more. We praise you now in Christ's name. Amen.